0: This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to a podcast of rare antiquities episode 19 today we go back in time to the time of 1950s hollywood where men were men and women were secretaries or crazy we're gonna talk about the 1950 classic sunset boulevard harry welcome back to the show man how's it going i'm good i'm good how are you I'm doing good man it's good to be back on the show deconstructing these classics so uh yeah i thought we'd uh do something a little bit different. We haven't covered any films from this time period before so let me ask you uh, did you have any awareness of this film before? I, I think you said you had never seen
0: it, right? Uh, I had not seen it, no. The interesting thing here is is that for some reason I feel I've seen bits and pieces of it in my memory and I, maybe pictures of, I think her name is Gloria Swanson, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I remember seeing her and I think the last shot of the movie where she kind of, we won't ruin it, but just the last shot of her in the movie. Yeah. I've seen before.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, It's a pretty iconic shot, I think. Um I, I mean, I can tell you about you know my history with this film. It, it's it's a little bit long, but I I remember many years ago, uh, at least ten years ago, maybe more, maybe fifteen years ago, I I got this uh, film as a as a Christmas gift on DVD from from an uncle of mine, and you know not particularly close family member. And I'm not typically a fan of older black and white films. It's not really my wheelhouse. You know, there's the odd one here and there. So I, you know, I opened this up and I looked at it and I'm like, what the hell is this? And just kind of cast it off into a pile. I didn't even take the shrink wrap off. It just got thrown on a shelf somewhere and it sat there for years and i i think i had a uh the wrong idea about what what this movie was about i thought it was just some old uh, romance movie or something black and white i didn't really give a shit and then at some point, many years later, uh, I can't remember who it was. It might have been my dad or or somebody else uh, had had uh, had brought it up, and uh, maybe they saw it on my shelf or something, and started talking about what an awesome movie it was. I'm like, eh, whatever. But then once I heard more about it and what it was about, I'm like, oh, all right, I'll I'll give this one a go. And uh, so I finally watched it after after many years of of owning it and. You know, in its original packaging, and and finally watched it, and uh, well, you know, we don't want to give away too much of uh, what I thought about the movie, but uh, it it managed to make the cut here anyway. So, uh, so that's kind of my history with uh, with the film. There, um, we can get into it. Do you have any thoughts uh, or any comments before we we jump into Sunset Boulevard, Harry?
0: No, I, I'm glad that we're we're visiting um, uh, going back into the fifties uh, black and white movies, our first one. Yeah, I, I just know of. Gloria Swanson's history herself yeah okay uh, yeah I kind of remember reading a long time ago that she uh, had some dalliances or like she was pretty wasn't she a pretty famous silent movie star too so I think this movie kind of plays into it's almost like a partial autobiography of her
1: yeah and they in the in casting this role they were they were definitely looking. For somebody who had, who embodied that character who had been obviously around and had been in, uh, uh, in some silent films, which we can, uh, I'll get into with, with the trivia. But yeah, that, that was, that was definitely, they looked at a few actresses who, uh, would have fit in that, in that role a little bit older, at least by Hollywood standards, uh, who had been in the, uh, the silent film era, but, uh, you know, sort of fell out of favor later on. So, yeah, she's pretty famous for sure, or was the
0: time? Yeah, yeah, and I think I remember that's something to do with. I think she—I can't remember if I'm wrong. But was she didn't obviously didn't date JFK, but that family member or something like that because I remember her name coming up in some history books or something related to the Kennedys. I, I can't recall, so I thought maybe you're doing the trivia.
1: We'll get to her uh, a little bit of biographical information about her as we as we progress here. Um, but why don't we why don't we uh, r- run right into this guy? Sunset Boulevard A body floats in the pool in the 10,000 block of Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood, California. He has three bullets in his body, and police and media swarm the scene. The disembodied voice of Joe Gillis offers to tell us the story before it all gets blown out of proportion in the newspapers. Let's go back six months. There's Joe, the man who will end up perforated and floating in a pool in six months, banging away at his typewriter, cranking out original stories that just don't sell. The buzzer sounds, and Joe finds a couple of repo men here to take back his car. Seems he's behind on his payments. He weaves a little story, the car isn't here, something about a friend driving it down to Palm Springs, but he better come up with the 290 bucks he owes in back payments, and there's going to be fireworks. Once the Repo guys leave, Joe heads across the street to a parking lot behind a shoe shop. Here's his car. He jumps in and heads to the Paramount lot, where he has a script kicking around. He needs to get paid, and fast. Inside the office of studio executive Sheldrake, Joe pitches his story about pitches. Baseball pitches, in fact. Some bullshit about some gangsters and betting, and, well, it sounds like a lot of nonsense, but he gets his secretary on it. Young Betty Schaefer rolls in with a two-page synopsis on the script. It sucks. Joe and Betty exchange some zippy dialogue before Joe tells her where to stick it, and Sheldrake tells him he's out of luck. You know it's the 50s when Joe heads to his local writer's hangout, a drugstore, to pump nickels into a public phone booth, trying to get a hold of anyone and everyone who might be able to help him out of his bind. Finally tracks down his good-for-nothing agent and meets him at the golf course, but instead of a loan or a lead on some work, His agent tells him that the best motivation for cranking out a great script is an empty stomach. Joe's prospects have added up to zero. He rages down the highway out of control and looking for a disaster. It's either sell all his junk and move back to Ohio or... As he rounds a corner, he blows a tire. He pulls into a long driveway to assess the damage. and finds a decrepit old mansion and a nice big garage to store his car in. The place is overgrown with wild plants... It's an empty pool and no one to be seen, yet a voice calls out to him from the second floor behind a blind. He can't make out the figure, but a butler appears at the door, ushering him inside. Feeling that he has stumbled upon a scene that he would rather have absolutely nothing to do with, he tries to explain his way out, but simply gets ushered upstairs to meet aging silent film star Nora Desmond. She carries the force of a hurricane with her. Something about her overstated style and sharp voice. When She starts talking about a coffin, and Joe sees a figure beneath a shroud on a table. He approaches slowly, and Norma draws back the shroud to reveal a fucking monkey. A dead goddamn chimpanzee. Well, Joe's not getting any deeper into this, so he tells her, ah, she's got the wrong guy, and she tells him to get lost, and he's all good with that, except... Say, she looks kind of familiar. It is Norma Desmond. Yeah, she's none too happy that people actually use words and shit in the movies now. Well, Joe, he's just a writer, not an executive, so he'll be on his way. And Norma's like, wait, you're a writer? And Joe's like, yeah, a bad one. And Norma's like, well, come have a look at something. In the living room, piles of paper have taken over. Norma's written a script herself, the greatest of all time, and it will be her grand return to the silver screen. Since Joe has nothing better to do, and he's lying low anyway, he agrees to sit down and read this monstrosity. He reads it well into the night, Norma staring at him the whole time, and in a grand display of reverse psychology, he finds his next paycheck. He will patch up this mutated monster of a script for a fee, but he just bit off more than he can chew, as Norma will not let him leave with it. So here he must stay, day and night, to complete his work. Effectively held captive, Joe reworks the script half the time and spends the other half joining Norma and indulging in the memories of a forgotten age of cinema. It's all like a dream, an oddity of existence that's like a rotting piece of flesh still attached to the body, but at least it pays the bills. Norma decks Joe out in all the finest clothes and the finest cool cigarette holders and even gets him a tuxedo for New Year's Eve. And the main hall is all decked out for a grand celebration. The small orchestra plays off to the side, the dance floor is all waxed up, and it looks like the butler stole the buffet table from Hogwarts. Joe rolls up in his new tux, Norma in her high style evening dress, and the two start dancing the night away. Only, hmm, things seem a little lonely, don't they? Joe wonders when the other guests will arrive. It's already past ten and Norma's like, guests? What are these guests you speak of? Tonight, it's just the two of us. Turns out Norma's been in love with Joe all along. They argue a bit. Joe's freaked out and needs to get out of there. He runs out into the pouring rain. Ah, uh, December in California. And hitches a ride into town to his friend, his friend Artie's apartment. It's filled with New Year's celebration joy. It's wall to wall in there with a the lively young crowd that Joe no longer belongs to. He makes arrangements with, with Artie to crash there for a couple weeks. And even has a brief run in with Artie's new girlfriend, Betty, the young studio secretary who told him the script was a pile of crap. But after a second volley of witty dialogue, Joe is summoned back to the mansion. Turns out Norma has slit her wrists. But she's alive. And now Joe is trapped for good. Later on in summer, in the old mansion is looking like it got a haircut and hit the gym. The lawn is mowed and even the old pool is back in working order. Life looks good. But... In reality, Joe's getting bored. A chance encounter at a drugstore with Artie and Betty reveals a new opportunity for Joe. An old script of his made the rounds and the studio is interested. Joe says he's retired, but in the back of his mind, he still feels the pull of that typewriter. At the mansion, someone from Paramount Studios keeps calling for Norma. Finally, someone wants the script and it's time to get down there right away to get to work. She gathers Joe into the car and commands the butler to get them to the studio right away to speak with famed director Cecil B. DeMille. When they get to the studio, it quickly becomes apparent to everyone but Norma that her time has passed. The studio was never interested in her script or in her comeback. She has trouble taking the hint, however, and is convinced that the shoot is imminent. She gets herself on a diet and beauty regimen to prepare for filming, while Joe secretly meets with Betty at the studio in the evenings. The two are collaborating on a script and are making eyes at each other. He pushes her away. So they keep working night after night while Norma continues her beauty treatment. She knows he's been sneaking away and one night finds the script the two have been working on. Betty confesses to Joe that Artie wants her to move to Arizona with him, but she doesn't want to go. She confronts him at the mansion, but he describes his life as a live-in prostitute and isn't willing to slum it as a starving artist again. Betty's heart is broken and Joe shows her the door, but he's not staying either. He packs up his things. His old things, not his tailored suits, custom shoes, or platinum cufflinks. Just his ratty old sport coat and polo shirt, and he makes for the door. Norma tries to make him stay. She needs him for the picture, and he drops the bombshell. There is no picture. It's all in her mind. Chasing him out the door, she brandishes a pistol. A single shot rings out. Then another, and another. Down Joe falls into the pool. Norma's mind is gone. It's all just a movie now, and she's ready for her close-up. The end. All right. Well, that's Sunset Boulevard, Harry. Um, So just taking a look at uh, the story, the plot... What are your initial thoughts?
0: No, it's uh it's a good story. What's interesting to me is a couple of things. Like it's for some reason, even through the, your synopsis, it screams and oozes classic retro Hollywood. You know, not just because it's dealing with a screenwriter and he's, you know, dealing with the studios themselves, but this just feels like something that came out of that era. It fits right in this kind of story, a very small personal story. It, it centers around ego and vanity. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know, obviously that's the they both have egos and they both have vanity. I mean, more so obviously with uh Norma Desmond character than Joe. But that's just something that, that hit me when I watched the movie and I also got through your synopsis and I'll I'll leave it at that. I'll I'll mention more of my thoughts as we progress through the episode.
1: Yeah, sound, sounds good. Uh, there's uh, uh, That's interesting that you say about the um, place, you know, the, the film sort of places it directly in that time. And I think that that'll probably become an interesting topic as we move along. Uh, but let's uh, pause for a couple of uh, neat little details about Sunset Boulevard. Uh, so this movie was released in uh, 1950. Um, it had a budget of about $1.7 million at the time and ended up... Uh, that's surprising. Yeah. 1.7 million. Yeah. Um, so, certainly not a, a small production. Uh, it uh, grossed $5 million, approximately, worldwide. I mean, numbers are hard to come by for movies of this era, but that would certainly be considered uh, a success. Uh, it, in fact, had uh, many uh, nominations, uh, won Academy Awards for uh, best, uh, best Writing, uh, Best uh, art Direction and Best Music. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress in uh, both the supporting and leading roles for both nominated for Best Director, Cinematography and, and Editing. So wow. it certainly was. Full yeah. It, what's
0: that? Uh, full Slate. Of, yeah uh, full
1: yeah. full slate. It's uh, one of only a few films in history that has been nominated in all of those categories which are basically considered all of the uh, uh, the major film categories so uh, certainly well well received uh critically and and commercially. Uh this film stars uh William Holden uh, in the uh uh the lead male roles, Joe Gillis, Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond, and uh both of these uh uh figures uh certainly had prolific careers. Uh, William Holden has uh, over 70 acting credits to his name. Uh fairly fairly famous. I mean, he didn't do a whole lot um, of note after this, but he did continue working right up to his death in 1981. But he was in uh, uh, lots of famous stuff. Uh, for example, uh, he was in The Wild Bunch. He was in the uh, original Casino Royale, the spoof of the of Bond films back in 1967. Uh, yeah, that's among-
0: probably maybe the only other movie I've probably seen him in.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, he's in a lot of stuff and uh, the bridge and the river Kwai again. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's in that one too. That's yeah. right. So certainly, um, uh, certainly a very prolific career. Uh, Gloria Swanson, uh, she's, she's an interesting character. She began her film career, uh, over 100 years ago in. Ah, uh, silent films, uh, some uncredited appearances, um, you know, many short, short films. And uh, uh, again, this this film here, you know was was sort of her uh, comeback attempt if you will this is 1950 film sunset boulevard she did not work all that much after sunset boulevard she does have a few appearances here and there but um you know she she was known to not really uh enjoy the business anymore and uh she lived to uh age 84 she died in 1983 and and uh yeah just many many credits to her name uh, the other interesting figure here, we uh, we get a very famous cameo from uh, legendary director Cecil B. DeMille. Uh Is it this Cecil yeah. or Cecil? I don't know. It's one of the two. Um, what did they say in the movie? Was it Cecil? I thought it's Cecil, but I'm not sure. Oh, give me some seltzer. I need some <laughs> seltzer. Seltzer. <laughs> Uh, yes <laughs> mr demille was uh, uh is is nothing is nothing less than a hollywood uh legend he
0: maybe that's where all the, the 1.7 million budget went just getting yeah. him on board for a cameo
1: yeah could could well the, the, his cameo uh was reportedly uh ten thousand dollars uh that they had to pay him and when uh, the director needed to uh, do some reshoots. He asked for another ten thousand dollars. So, uh, that, and and you see how short his uh, his cameo actually is. I mean, it's a speaking cameo for sure. Um, and it's it's kind of a nice uh, you know metafictional casting of a, of a real director uh, in in this role who yeah. would have been that guy. So I thought yeah, that was,
0: was pretty. And then having I guess like now that we're even just talking about DeMille, I think it goes back to that point I mentioned before this seems like not just fitting in this era but this seems like a a movie that Hollywood made for Hollywood for mm. the, like the studios made for the studios yeah in that sense like it's just like it's almost like a private little film for themselves that they released it to the public. Yeah. And, and yet is extraordinarily
1: is. critical of, of the business in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but getting back to DeMille, I just, I mean, a couple of interesting things I noted, he has, uh, 80, 80, uh, director credits to his name going all the way back to, uh, 1914. He directed, uh, the 10 commandments in 1923, and then directed the remake of the 10 commandments in 1956, the Charlton Heston yeah. version. Um, among other things, The Greatest Show on Earth, you know, lots of, uh, lots of those old sort of grand uh, films from, uh, from uh, you know, from that age of, of Hollywood. And he was also a very prolific producer as a producer on a lot of his own films, as, many, as well as many others. Um, you know, World of Worlds, for example, he worked on that, Samson and Delilah uh, he was a writer. He appeared uh, as uh, a narrator and actor in some things. Uh, again, there was really nothing that this guy uh, didn't do. He was he was a, a giant in in Hollywood. I don't know that there's a modern day uh, comparison to uh, to this guy. So um,
0: Michael Bay, <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, writer, director, producer, <laughs> actor. Michael Bay still holds the. Uh, uh, the top spot for greatest cameo of all time, I think. So <laughs> yes, brewskis. Yeah, dude, can we bring the brewskis. <laughs> <laughs> greatest, greatest ever. Uh, I wanted to talk a bit about the uh, the opening here uh, for a couple reasons. So I always find it fascinating how you know the opening credits and all these old films, and I don't know when it switched. Uh, they they do all of the all of the credits up front, the title, the cast, and they do all the crew and everybody like that, uh, as opposed to the end of the film, which is customary. Of course, in recent in recent times, but it sure took a, a lot less guys to make a film. You know, the credits don't last for twelve minutes like they do on on the big movies nowadays. No, but yeah, you know, like I, I saw.
0: Like, do you remember uh, Jaws? Like at the end of that thing, that when they you just see the shot of the, the beach and the cove, it's like literally like like ten names pop up, and that's the end yeah, of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the the cast and crew. It's like uh, some guys that I rounded up on the street and they hopped my van. <laughs> we made that shark movie and and <laughs> and nowadays like I went to Captain America on the weekend and the credits are like 14 minutes long and it's the entire population of South Korea uh, everybody who ever lived in California ever and like I think my name was in that credits like everybody's in that involved in that it's just it, it's crazy how things have have changed over the decades here you know i mean it's it's
0: not recognizable even could also be possible that maybe the people that they back in those days it could be like a, a rights issue like a person uh employee rights like maybe certain employees who even did work on fit the films or crews or certain trades those guys didn't get recognition on the movie like they yeah. might be on the books but they're not recognized on screen. Whereas yeah. I think due to unions and development of employee rights and such and such, I think that's where people, you know, those movements happened, uh, rightfully so. And through those developments now, every single person who had any hand in the movie, they get their name on the credits.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, and that's quite likely. Yeah, that's, that's uh,
0: probably true. So.
1: Um I, I did like the the opening music here. Uh it's got some ominous tones to it, but very classical, fair, very old fashioned Hollywood. And uh I think it set the mood right away. You know, it's it's kind of a stirring score, but there's an undertone of of something dark I I thought that was really effective for setting the mood here
0: yeah exciting yet ominous
1: yeah Uh, tough tough to you know you don't get a lot of that today for sure you know even the classical scores that we get now feel kind of recycled and canned Um, but I kind of I I liked how the camera pulls out from you know we're traveling along the road we're on Sunset Boulevard and we get the voiceover of uh, who we find to be to be Joe so this is obviously a trope of the film noir era
0: yeah it's yeah film noir and you, you get the sense of yeah like other films said in that genre but you know it's kind of funny i always get like i feel like i was watching the twilight zone almost, yeah you know <laughs> but, you know what it, it does have that feel to it doesn't it yeah like when we first start i feel like i'm just they're setting an episode of the twilight zone or the scary yeah. door i don't know if you're a futurama per a nut well i
1: i mean yeah yes and no um but i i uh There's
0: another podcast yeah, okay. We'll do that on another show. Um,
1: yeah, you would be hell. I've seen episodes of the Twilight Zone that were not as odd as this movie, so it it might have fit. Uh, but what I... And I remember from the first time I watched this, what I found uh, very striking is, you know, the the narrator's... Very nonchalant about it. He's just describing the place, the time of day, five in the morning. Uh, oh, and that's the Homicide Squad. Uh, there's a murder. It's not a big deal. We get there and the dude's in the pool. And then and then right away, we see that that's him. That's the, the guy narrating it is the guy we just saw floating in the pool. So uh, I thought that was... I remember that grabbed me the first time I saw it. I thought that was really interesting. Again, that is also... I don't know if you'd say it's a trope of... uh of, of noir fiction or hard-boiled detective stories. It's not, I don't know if this is the first time it was used. It's certainly not the last, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So, what, yeah. what did you think of of that reveal right, right up front?
0: Well, it's interesting. This is it's funny because, you know, I've never seen Sunset Boulevard until now for this podcast. And I now get some of the pop culture references in other movies. Mm-hmm. Like, say, for example, The Simpsons. Like, I remember clearly there's an, actually an uh, episode of American Dad show i know you do not enjoy but i do is there's a character named steve and he's starts an episode with a narration and he's floating in a pool of (laughs) jello i I, I didn't and he's like dead but i didn't understand this reference to something in pop culture obviously a movie which movie i didn't know now i know yeah, yeah. And they just put their little twist with jello instead of uh, water. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've seen it. You've seen it in other, like, you know, I think we've seen it in the Simpsons. We've seen it in other movies. The, it yeah. doesn't have to be a guy floating in the pool, but something happening to a guy where he looks like he's dead or about to die. Yes, yes. You know, like you could even think the, correct me if I'm wrong, is it the opening of Lost in that sense? Like, not exactly that way, but using uh, that same
1: trope. Yeah, yeah I, th- yeah, I think you're right. Like, you see the, op- like the, if you wanted to kind of expand it out, like you see the opening and somebody's fucked, yeah. you know, whether yeah. they're dead or dying or bleeding out, because yeah, that's happened all the time. And then it's like, okay, let's go back and we'll show you how we got here. The Fight Club, uh, used that's opened with that same, yeah. uh. Thats that same trope so uh, yeah this is this is very likely where it where it started. I have to do a little more research there but the what I found really interesting is the shot itself of him floating in the pool I thought was a very striking shot and when I thought you know at first I'm like, that's a really cool shot and then I thought, well shit, this is 1950. Yeah. They didn't have sophisticated equipment or the technology. And, like, how did they do this?
0: So saran wrap, Jeff, saran wrap around the camera. Yeah, saran wrap. Around. Did they have <laughs> saran
1: wrap in 1950? Man, I don't know uh, that they had it. No, what what they did was they uh, they structured the shot so that, uh, a mirror on the bottom and they shot down uh and they shot the reflection off of the mirror coming out of the water so that you know the camera is obviously on dry land but can shoot that you know the the reflection oh that's pretty cool yeah
0: it's a nice yeah. bit uh, of trivia
1: very very creative like you know nowadays you don't you know directors don't really need to worry too much about how they're going to place the camera in their shot because you can do whatever you want whether it's cg or whether it's physical because you know cameras are are small they can they can be wireless. They can, you know, they can move whatever. They you can put them underwater. You can do whatever you want with them. So uh, it just shows some of the creativity of the uh, of the filmmaker here. I thought uh, was was pretty great. So uh, anyway, so we get uh, uh, so we're going back six months. The as our narrator takes us back, and we see uh, our uh, our hero Joe, and he's banging away at his typewriter in his, uh, his apartment. There, uh, a couple guys uh, show up, and they want to. Uh, they're there to repo his car. And this is a small scene, but uh, I really liked every, every piece of information we learn in this scene. It's super compact. But we learn that, so Joe's a writer and a failed one at that. Uh, shitty apartment. We know he, we get a, We get an insight into his character because he, as, a, as any writer would do, he weaves a story on his feet to get himself out of a bind. Also, uh, you know, it's, dishonest,
0: it's, 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 right? I don't know, man. This is not much of a story. Oh, um, I, I let my car or a family member has it or whatever he says. I don't know. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. <laughs> and, but, and they could like tell monkey his- Monkey can solution. come up with that, so- that story,
1: man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No wonder Maybe he's a, a failed writer. Maybe the monkey did, and that's why he's dead. Coco the monkey. Oko the monkey, <laughs> poor bastard. Uh, I didn't say it was a good story. He was just weaving a story. So, but he's also a liar. He's not, I uh, get, you know, you get the impression he may, he might not be the most honest guy. Uh, you know, he already, he already foresaw this, he had his car, uh, you know, parked a parking lot across the street there. So, uh, so yeah, I, I liked how compact that was. We learned a lot out of this little scene It you know, you could, you could say you could throw it away, but it, it does set the stage how, how important the car is. I
0: I, I don't know. To be honest, I think this kind of MacGuffin or plot point just to get him to where he needs to go, I think they could have come up with a much better story here. (laughs) The idea of like financial repo men coming to get the car and he's trying to escape him. I mean, seriously, I don't know. This is dated and poor. This almost took me out of the picture right away. I completely disagree with you. I know it's compact, That I agree with. They don't spend a lot of time. And they're just setting, as I said, setting up the device to get him from point A to point B. But I don't know. I I wasn't a fan of any of this. Even the dialogue. Now, this is now we're talking about the dialogue that he's having, the standoff he's having with those repo men or financial repo men from the dealership. I didn't like the. This is very dated old Hollywood. You see? And like, you know, it's kinda of like, you know <laughs> that kind of, You know what I mean? It's, oh yeah, I totally I totally know what you mean. It, it it's uh, the slang in the vocabulary, right? Of the time, sign of the yeah. time, so completely get it, but I found that strange that the rest of the movie seemed more well written and grounded and not staged. Like this was forced staged classic Hollywood dialogue in these scenes here. Or as I felt, the rest of the movie didn't have that.
1: Well, I see what you're saying. I mean it. It does. It does feel a little bit staged. I mean, it makes me wonder. I I don't know. I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole here quite a bit. But you know, we're in the real world now. It feel. It seems staged because you know things aren't going his way. Later on, when things don't seem as staged, when the when the dialogue's better written, I mean, that's when he's in you know what whatever that bizarre reality that he eventually finds himself into so you know there's kind of an interesting mirroring effect going on there like i say i mean you know maybe we're reading uh, too much into it i don't i don't know but uh uh and anyway i mean it's just one it's just one it's scene so scene, yeah. yeah it's a small scene so uh gets the car he heads over to the paramount lot and and there's the the gates to paramount studios which from all accounts at least from seeing on on tv is the exact it looks exactly the same Today as it did way back in the in the in the fifties and sooner, so I thought that was kind of a cool shot yeah. where we get to see the uh, you know the the arches of Paramount Studios though. Anyway, so he's in uh, so he's in the office with the uh, Paramount executive, Shell Drake, and he's pitching mm-hmm. him this this story and. Uh, some bullshit about uh, baseball and g- gets involved with gangsters, and it's it's just not it's just not a sell. He's uh, again the script's been kicking around, so the so the exec calls for his secretary to to look into this. Here uh, she finds the script called "Bases Loaded," which sounds like you know some fucking porn movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's either porn movie or some you know feel good uh inner city coach takes over a baseball team filled with misfits with Keanu Reeves or something stupid so it's nice so it's nice to know some things have never changed Keanu Reeves <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we're Canadian yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay
1: how about a hockey movie with Sean William Scott instead so the the secretary rolls in we we got our we we meet Betty who's the uh, the love interest from for later and uh she's got a two-page synopsis and she basically says it's a it's a pile of shit she says it's just a, a rehash of something that wasn't very good uh, to begin with and uh and that's their introduction here. And Joe and Betty, they exchanged some some zippy dialogue here. And uh, I mean, I'm kind of of two minds here. What did you think of this conversation between the two, if, if, if you found anything of note here?
0: No, not much. Again, I think it's still the continuation of that stage dialogue. I was going to say even before, I think the only times I feel that this kind of classic retro Hollywood drama slash slang slash dialogue. Is like in the beginning of the movie, or any time he has a scene with Betty. Yeah, yeah. So uh, not a fan. I, mean, I know it's just it's just a MacGuffin to set the guy up, like backstory to set the guy up, and a MacGuffin from him for him to get from point A to point B, where we yeah. eventually, uh, eventually are going to be headed.
1: Yeah, and it's and this is also a, a part of the setup for some of the payoffs that happen in the third act as well. But I did, I mean, the the dialogue notwithstanding itself, uh, I, I I got a lot out of this conversation in the you know, in the criticism of Hollywood sense, like she says that the scripts kind of Bullshit. And, you know, he's like, well, what do you recommend? James Joyce, Dostoevsky. You know, he's talking about really heavy stuff. And she's like, well, I think pictures should say a little something. And he says, Well, you know, okay, you need a message, just the story won't won't do. And um, you know, she she one of her lines is like, Okay, so what? You just take plot twenty-seven-a, make it glossy, make it slick. And I thought, shit, it's 1950 and they're worrying about this. I mean, doesn't this Describe exactly how movies are made now. I mean, you go to the theater now, and that's ninety-nine percent of of everything fits
0: right down into that. Well, and I think it's, it's demographics, right? Yeah. Well, just what do you mean? It's like selling to a demographic. Mm. So nothing has changed for Hollywood. I mean, yeah. you know, independent films do something different, but big studio pictures is just I need to fit into a demographic to make my money yeah they're not then it with respect to that's this big business nothing has changed
1: right and and, but interesting this because as we talked before as this sort of seemed like a a hollywood movie made you know by hollywood people for hollywood people you know we're not using a fake studio it's paramount and 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 it's being very self-aware and self-critical uh at, at the same time and i thought that that was interesting that um you know that 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 a big studio would would want to do that, right? Make a movie about itself where where yeah. it doesn't look, it doesn't look like it's uh, it's not portraying itself in the most positive light.
0: No, but no. I think what. You know, we are lo- maybe reading into some of the subtext that really wasn't the focus of the writers or the point of the picture. I think I mean, what, really it's about who Gloria Swanson is. I mean, no, Norma Desmond is and who Gloria Swanson is and was versus as she is aged and also the transition from silent pictures into pictures with sound, you know, moving pictures is, I think they we call it or something. I'm not sure. So the talk, uh, I, I think is what. Yeah, so I think yep. I think it was more to deal with those two topics at the time was the focus of this movie. At least that's my interpretation. You know, we can read into other subtexts too, like you know, actresses getting parts as they age, and that's still a relevant topic. And even in today's world, for for actresses or as women in in other jobs, right, just as they get older, it's tougher for women to find a, still find a job in comparison to a man. So, I mean, I think that still pretty much rings fairly true. So, you know, maybe is there, are they having some small commentary on that even back in 1950? Possibly. But yeah, uh, we can talk about that later.
1: Yeah. Uh, they they end their, their little exchange here. I don't know, maybe speaking of reading too much into things, they, they end their little exchange here and Betty just says goodbye. And, and Joe says, yeah, goodbye. And maybe next time I'll write the naked and the dead. And I'm like, was that, that his? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he just said, yeah, I hope you end up raped and murdered in a ditch somewhere, bitch. That's what I heard. Uh, when he
0: yeah, you could take it that way. I, I also interpret it as like, you know, you're a, a woman and you just go read your Harlequin romance novel where everyone is still in the 1950s. Uh, they're still all dressed in the novel. Yeah, right? so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: definitely wasn't paying her a compliment there. I think that's for sure. No. So either way, it's not a compliment. No. Uh, and uh, so Joe does not get what he needs uh, out of the studio here. You know, he asks for a loan, gets uh, rebuked. So, it gets booted out, basically. Um, and then I kind of like this scene here. He says he drove down to headquarters. And when he said that line, I, again, uh, going back to the film noir uh, genre, I, I got the picture of, like, the hard-boiled detective driving back down to headquarters to continue the investigation. I don't know if that was the uh, the intent here. But uh, kind of uh, definitely a sign of the times when you, you know, you get to a drugstore and this is a place where, you know, people hang out, uh, actors, writers, uh, you know, lots of people and, and you know, and, and this is where you go to, to jump on the telephone and start uh, hammering nickels into it here. So I thought it was kind of neat, not, not, uh, not a whole lot else going on here other than, you know, just the nostalgia piece. The fact that this is a place that even existed in relatively recent times is it's odd. Like this kind of thing doesn't exist anymore. What would the what would what would the analog be of this today? Good question. I don't know, like an internet cafe, a Starbucks. I mean, there really isn't there really isn't anything like this anymore. So
0: I think I think the Starbucks or internet internet cafe coffee shop. I mean, it's pretty much where you the equivalent in today's society, right? Yeah, your fucking phone is pretty much the equivalent to that fucking to this thing, right?
1: You're yeah, you're right. Your phone is the equivalent to everything now. It doesn't matter. You know, it's interesting. I mean, like like your kids are gonna grow up never never having seen probably in in real life a telephone booth they'll know what it is the same way that you and I know what a telegraph machine was right but we would never have seen one in person so it's just kind of neat how how some of these things change but anyway um so he uh he gets a hold of his agent after making a bunch of calls, tracks him down to the golf course, and uh again doesn't doesn't really. Uh, uh, have any luck here? This agent says, You know, well, no, your car's gonna re- get repoed. Yeah, it's fine. You just sit in front of your typewriter. Oh, you're hungry? Uh it's okay too. All the best stuff was written really on an empty stomach. So, yeah,
0: it's well, I mean, it seems harsh, but it seems like good advice too. Yeah, yeah, tough love. And, and, yeah.
1: and again, we're getting a little bit more insight into Joe's character. I mean, obviously, he's desperate, but, uh, you know, he's trying to kind of claw his way out of his situation, but maybe the fact of the matter is that he sucks at this whole thing. He might just be a shit writer. Yeah, and he's shit, st- shit or lazy
0: or... I don't or know. lazy, yeah. Yeah, one of the two. Probably a combination of both.
1: Well, a combination of both. I mean, he's obviously... He's not, he's not a knight in shining armor. He's not a perfect guy, a, a hero. He's... You know, he's i find him very relatable in the sense that he kind of he kind of feels the world's against him he feels like he's doing what he he needs here what he can do in order to improve his situation but you know if he were to if he were to look in the mirror uh you know he'd probably see that you know no he's not he's not who he could be he's not who he should be maybe he should be focusing his energy in other places i mean i, I like characters that are constructed in this manner because they are they're very relatable i mean it's we can all look at ourselves and and I think uh, you know, see a lot of ourselves in in characters like this. Yes, yes, agreed. Uh, so some bullshit on the highway. He bo- he blows
0: a tire, and oh yeah, this fucking car chase. Yeah, <laughs> anything to do with the, those repo guys? It's just uh, it's silly. Yeah, it, it is a little bit. It is a little
1: bit silly for sure. And and, and this is where I would agree with you that this is you know this is just a mechanism to get him to where he needs to go um but you know that being said he does need to get to where he needs to go so you kind of got to you have to get him there some way uh and at least it's at least it's brief i guess oh, yeah. uh so he blows a tire and and down the rabbit hole uh he goes and and this this part uh, after the chase i like is he kind of goes down the driveway and and it's a it's now a totally different world i mean it's one of these Opulent old mansions, but it's run down, overgrown, you know, this old car in the driveway that's, you know, super luxury car, but it looks, but it's worn down. And, and the place is just a mess, absolute mess. And he, uh, you know, as he describes it, you know, as he describes it to us in his, in his voiceover, you know, the, the kind of, the kind uh, of house that crazy movie people built back in the crazy twenties. Um, So I thought that was, uh, you know, it's kind of neat as we, as we, you know, get the initial impressions of, you know, his, uh, you know, the start of him tumbling down to this other world here. What did you think of the introduction to, to this setting that's going to be such an important part of the rest of the movie?
0: Oh, I loved it. This aspect, it feels like it transcends uh, genres, whether you're talking about noir or classic movies from Hollywood or horror movies, even to this day, I feel it or mystery or mysteries. You get that ominous vibe setting and a grand setting where an adventure or something interesting is really going to happen it's a totally different world for not just the character but the audience itself yeah exactly and i
1: i love it when movies are able to pull that off they kind of just grabs you and then slowly just pulls you into this other place, like you said, where where you know whatever the adventure is going to be, whether it's exciting or scary or whatever. Uh, something about the mystery is is great. Um, she uh, and then he hears a voice yelling from uh, from the second floor. He doesn't really know what's going on, um, but here's uh, Butler ushers him in. You know, as an older guy, um, you know, obviously this is a, this is not a uh, a squatter. This is a professional butler. You know, he's all done up in his butler duds. He's Noël for Pennyworth, but you know, he he means business. This guy who's got the sort of sharp German accent, and uh, and he's not really sure what's going on, and he just sending him upstairs so you know what's what's a man to do when a when a when an old german dude's yelling at you to do shit you this name 1950 you you fucking do it so uh up he goes and again it's he's tumbling further down and you get a sense of this place and it's not a it's not really run down on the inside it's you know it's got all of the uh uh opulence and indulgence of a, as you'd expect to find in you know a, a movie star's mansion from this period and uh you know we finally You know, meet up with uh, Norma Desmond. uh, So we, you know, we don't know who she is. And and again, it's kind of a strange scene. We don't really know what's going on. We get this weird room, and there's she's dressed all weird and acting strange, like she's talking to him like she's expecting him, and he doesn't have a fucking clue what's going on. And there's this figure on this table under. Under the under the shroud, so I mean, before the before the reveal here, I mean, again, how how are you finding that this as the setting further uh, expands itself? Uh, are, are you getting drawn in here? Like, what are you, what are you thinking at this point?
0: I'm not sure if I'm getting more drawn in just yet. I think when he eventually has a little bit more of a conversation with Norma, then that's a bit of a different story. This whole thing with the funeral of the monkey. You know, huh. um yeah, I found it kind of, yeah, just a little bizarre, but I mean, you know, high society Hollywood freaks, I guess that's you know, maybe she considered it family. She was lonely, so she jazzed it all up his funeral and yeah, I mean a little odd, but I really really didn't pay too much attention to that aspect. I wasn't really more drawn in or taken aback just yet.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I was just, I mean, I was drawn in, but I was so confused. I'm like, what is this dead monkey doing here? Uh, I I mean, it was so bizarre, but I I mean, I kind of liked the, uh, I I liked that about this here is this is, this world is something completely different than what this guy, you know, is used to, has seen before. Um, An odd choice from a filmmaking perspective, maybe it was more common to keep a monkey as a pet. In the fifties, um, maybe not. I don't know. You know, he's uh, he's trying to sort of ex- extricate himself from the situation here. But then he recognizes her, and uh, uh, you know, he says the line, "Oh, you're you're Norma Desmond. You used to be in pictures. You used to be big." And and she has a line, "I am big. It's the pictures that got small." Mm. And I love that. I love that line. I thought that was a
0: a great line. I agree. Yeah. She was striking right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: very striking right off the bat. Uh, You know, crazy, powerful at the same time. Yeah.
0: Give you my first reactionary instinct to when I saw her and when she first started speaking and, you know, hamming it up a little bit is Shatner. Mm. Shatner. (laughs) Female William Shatner. Yeah. And when you think about it, could you not see Shatner in this role? Yeah, if you
1: if you did a gender reversal here, um, yes and no. And here's why I say yes and no. So yes, because absolutely, you know, Shatner has that uh, larger than life type of persona to him, um, and and certainly has the ability to to I I would say believably deliver melodramatic performances in you know in a good way, right? That that would sell it. So so yes, that's actually very interesting that you say that the only what the and the reason why i say no slightly is like a, a young young william shatner i think would have definitely worked but
0: yeah yeah well, young william shatner uh, that's what i'm talking about yeah
1: but because it is an
0: older character
1: oh yeah
0: you know, no I, yeah. I know yeah so it's, all, it's factors a being,
1: all things being equal yeah that's that's uh, maybe they should do a remake of sunset boulevard
0: with william uh, he's, shatner
1: he's a little he's a little long in the tooth even for for this now but uh you know, maybe twenty years no, we'd ago, watch it. we'd watch it. You know, you'd watch it. Oh, yeah, I'd watch it. But twenty years ago, it would have been great. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to 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 Big Bill. Um, actually, that, that that's interesting. I can't I can't get the picture out of my mind because I've seen him his face in black and white, and now it's just burned into my eyes, <laughs> really as it should. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm not going to. I have done up. my job for today. Yes, you have. <laughs> okay. thanks thank you and that's the show ladies and gentlemen I gotta go burn my eyeballs out anyway as so as they continue their their witty repartee uh, again and that, it, Joe has the line like she just she's uh, belittling the the movies as they are now because people talk in them so uh, she just says they keep they talk and they talk and they talk which to a guy who writes is you know I, I imagine he's 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 taking exception. But he also, I think, might agree with her. He says that's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and you plug up your ears. So he's he's no more a fan. I I don't think of of the films than than she is at this point. They keep their exchange uh, going, and you know, on the one hand, it gets it's pretty zippy. It's it's well written in the sense that. You know, each line is crafted, but sometimes when each line is crafted so particularly, it starts to stand out a little bit, especially when you have a character like Norma, who's so melodramatic. Uh, I don't know, I think maybe a little bit over the top here. What do you
0: think? Yeah, and these opening scenes, um, the way she's kind of gesturing with her head and very stiff, very jerky. I mean, again, you know, first instinct, Shatner, but melodramatics probably the... And overacting, but the melodramatics still probably the more appropriate term here. You would have to kind of think that as a silent movie star, you know, they had to... Just like Shatner, there's always this joke. It's like he did what he did in the 60s because he had to overcompensate for bad special effects. So... <laughs> She Did she, did silent movie stars have to overcompensate for no audio?
1: Well, I, I mean, I would say absolutely they yeah. would have to. Yeah, you got to move your head around to emote because you can't use dialogue to do it. You can't, there's no sound. So yeah, and I, so I think it fits. I think her mannerisms fit perfectly here because you're yep. right, it's over-exaggerated. It's just the, the dialogue itself. Well, again, maybe it's on purpose because we're talking about, you know, we're, 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 we're pulling this, this silent film star into the age of, of, uh, of scripted, uh, of, of, of the talkies. So, you know, maybe that's.
0: Yeah. I think maybe that's exactly why she is not comfortable in this world. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. She, she can't relate at all. No, she can't relate at all. It's, um, and then you add the uh, concept of ego and vanity, right? Like she cannot accept that she is no longer relevant. So she, whether she's crazy or she's just full of herself and can't see it uh, as the human ego and it play with each other there. Yeah. That's why she is who she is and how she is.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And she, and as you know, speaking of ego, I mean, she says, you know, the line, she says the line, they took, they took the idols and smashed them, but she sees herself, she's one of the idols of, of the era and she's been smashed, right? Her, her career is effectively over. She's been shut up in this place for you know, decades, I guess, at this point. So, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is an important conversation. You know, you could unpack this one for, for days, but, but yeah, again, I think that getting the gist of it is, you know, us how, how Hollywood is, has definitely left her behind, right? Uh, but yeah, so. But, but then the irony there is she's written her own movie script and, or she takes him into the, uh, I guess what you would call the living room and it's just buried under, uh, piles and piles and piles of paper uh, where she's handwritten this, uh, this, uh, script. It took her years to write and, uh, uh she, you know, she's kind of a little nutso here, uh, but convinces, uh, Joe to read the script, which,
0: you know, takes him. I kind of wonder what the script was about. I mean, was it similar at all to Star Trek 5, The Final Frontier? That's what I want to know. Yeah.
1: What does, what does God need with
0: the starship, right?
1: What does God need with the starship?
0: Uh, I think
1: that there is something here. I, I think there's a story. I don't know what the reference is because I was more concerned with uh, some of the other features here. I didn't really look into it, but I do think she describes certain aspects here that do reference a story. Uh, you know, this, she says it's the story of... Uh, Salome. So I think that's probably a, a something something, which we can uh, maybe hit the Google machine here pretty quick. But um, it's obviously a mess, right? Like the whole thing's a mess. And I, I like that it's portrayed as a mess in two ways. Like she's nuts and there's just shit everywhere. So this is... You know, we're we're not led to believe as viewers that you know she's written the next great film. She's she's written a a, a large she's written a large garbage fire. Here is basically what she's done, right? Uh, but he, I mean, he's convinced to sit down and read it, which he does. Uh, you know, late late into the night, it just gets weirder because you know, sure enough, like yeah, a guy shows up with the baby coffin for the monkey, and he marvels at how all of this this whole monkey thing. Is all done with great dignity. Uh, you know, it must have been a very, very important chimp, is what he says. The great grandson of King Kong, maybe. And I thought this was—I mean, this is the microcosm for what what the movie's saying—is
0: like they like don't Hol- know anything big. Like Hollywood isn't as big and grand as it used to be.
1: Well, it's just—it's all monkey business. Right, they're just playing pretend, but they do it with such you know grand seriousness, like it's the most important thing in the world. Even today, I mean, it's in our in our culture, you know, the movie business is is very serious, is very important. You know, people take their entertainment very seriously. I don't know what sixty percent of the internet is devoted to people bitching about movies and TV shows, right? If it's not porn, and then
0: it's... The other... The other you're, you got the numbers wrong. 99, 99% porn. 0.5, 1%. Yeah, and then the other 1% is the bitching about movies. Bitching about movies, yeah.
1: You're right. Yeah, what was I thinking? But going all bad the way math.
0: back... It's like porn math.
1: Yeah, it's bat math. That there's even a 1% chance that people aren't watching porn, <laughs> we have to take it as an absolute certainty.
0: Certain, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but how interesting that this has always been... Uh, Hollywood, or at least how the writers see it here. So, I thought that was uh, pretty neat. It's such a bizarre scene. to see that guy walk in with that small coffin, and you know it's for the monkey. It's like, man... This shit is weird. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I was very struck by that particular scene in his line there. I don't know if that had
0: Like, are you, like, weirded out because of the burial in the backyard or because there was a coffin or because she took it so seriously? She has no family. She has no kids. Uh,
1: so. Not so much. It, well, so the first thing that, that hit me is, you know, we're before the burial, but just when the guy gets there with the coffin. So, first of all, the image was was striking, and then his commentary on it, uh, I thought was – I mean, he's he, – you know, he's not making a commentary on Hollywood, but the movie is, that it, it is making the commentary on Hollywood through the whole thing. So, you know, that's what I was kind of pulling out. And and uh, like I said, maybe it, it just –
0: well, I just take it as that, you know, two things. She was lonely and this is just how the stars of yesteryear did things. They, she just said it herself. She was always big. The pictures got smaller. So she, yeah. if you see throughout the rest of the movie, she does everything big, dresses big, car is, is grand, goes out to, on a simple little drive. It's like a very, the most fanciest thing you'll ever see. Does everything big, gets ready for the movies later. Very big, right? For her pretend filming and all that stuff nothing is small with her no that's
1: absolutely correct yeah her character 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 is that's
0: correct yeah. yeah so i think that just fits straight in with the who she is
1: oh it absolutely fits straight in with who she is and i think that's part of why it works uh so well because i i think it fits with the story on you know on the on the top and then i think it fits with the commentary underneath but uh um anyway that's uh that's what i think so Uh, but Joe reads this and he starts to get, uh, you know, he starts to sniff around his next paycheck. And I I also like this, uh, you know, this little exchange here where he, you know, he kind of, he kind of writes his way into being the script doctor on this film by telling her all of the reasons why he doesn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like, she's asking his, uh, his astrological sign and he's like, yeah, whatever. And again, I'm I'm busy and I got another job. I'm expensive. Like, oh, you know, I better do this. And then she's, and she's just laying it down and he's like, yeah, I've got this all wrapped up. He thinks yeah. he's got her wrapped around his finger. And, uh, so I, I, you know, I really liked how he, yeah, I liked these scenes too.
0: Yeah. I liked yeah. how he played, took advantage of the situation.
1: Yeah. Um, jokes on him though, I guess oh, is yes. it, <laughs> right. Cause as, as he finds that she won't let him leave with the scripts, um, you know, there's nowhere to go. She, uh. You know, she um, basically holds him prisoner now, right?
0: He, uh... Yeah, I'm wondering if Misery had some kind of like the movie. I mean, the book and the movie had some inspiration from this as well. Probably, this isn't the first movie where some obviously someone's being taken captive and held to write or do something for somebody, but very similar. I had a, a, that initial ominous feeling that you know, you obviously know that he's going to end up dead, but. This was reconfirms it right there. She's the one who's going to do it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. You can see the mistake he's making, you know, right, right here as he agrees to stay, you know, it was this kind of a, you know, an odd exchange between, between Max and, and Joe here, where, you know, he says something like, um, he says, you know, he, the Max says something like, I just, you know, made the bed today or something. He's like, well, you know, why'd you make it today? Like you couldn't have known I was coming or something like that. It was uh very ominous again, al- almost supernatural, even though, I mean, it's not actually supernatural, but uh, certainly unsettling, you know, as he's concocting, he says, he says the line that, the, you know, this whole place is out of beat with the rest of the world. And I thought you know, that was also a really good line as we've kind of talked, he's not really in his reality anymore. You know, he's,
0: he's in, uh, he's in, he's a, yep. this,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there's the burial of the of the monkey. I mean, I I was already you know it was already weird to me as he's you know he's looking out the window. He's in his room now. He's looking out the window. Uh, there's the you know the the last rites for the old the hairy old chimp as he says and again performed with the utmost seriousness. And and he says you know kind of what you were saying is you know was her life really uh, so empty as all of that right? That that was her that was her family. So um, a little bit of pity towards Norma at this point. Uh, we find that, you know, he, he awakens and all of his shit is just in this room now. So all of his stuff's been moved. He's had this weird dream. You know, he he again, he kinda tries to resist at this point. And now she's pulling the same kind of game on him. He's uh she's just using her, you know, strength of will power to, to keep him there. He's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not staying, don't unpack my shit. And she's like, It's already it's already done. We've paid for the rent, we've done, we've done everything. It's 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 done. It's in. So um, you know, he's, he's in, he's down the rabbit hole. What's your, what's your impressions to this point, Terry, of the, we're about to the end of act one here. What, uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah. You know, again, the feeling of, you know, him being trapped and the ominous feeling that obviously, since, you know, the end result is shown at the beginning of the movie, but this just, again, reconfirms it. Yeah. She's got her claws into him. He thought, you know, she turned the tables on him. He initially thought he turned the tables on her, but it's the other way around. Yeah. She's, exactly. she's two steps ahead of him. Yeah, so eventually he
1: he loses his uh, you know. There's a, there's a scene there where she's got some friends over, uh, and uh, this was interesting because I you know she has some friends over to play cards, bridge, yeah, bridge yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, and uh, well that's what they played man bridge. I mean it's not uh, it's not Texas Hold'em. Every time people play cards now it's Texas Hold'em, which I'm getting a little tired of, but. Uh, Uh, Yeah, so the plane bridge. And what was interesting is we had people from the outside worlds, or at least her former life, if you will, in the mansion. And
0: yeah, this was a fascinating scene because she looked like it didn't seem that it was a stuffy affair. It seemed (laughs) like they were, at least the girls were having some, they were engaged, they were engrossed in the card game. And they were having fun. There wasn't. It wasn't something snobby or stuffy. And I, I found that kind of interesting. It didn't. Almost didn't seem to fit with that character.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it didn't. And and maybe the reason why is this is you know maybe part of her. Maybe these are enablers, right? They're they're people from her her older old life, and and she can kind of reach back into into that life at this in at this moment so she becomes a little bit more lively she's not focused on Joe uh she doesn't care about his fucking car or the money it's like I'm playing cards and and nothing cuz the rest is always about Joe after this point but right now he's he's nothing she tells him to dump the fucking ashtray you know
0: yeah no but least, i mean it's just it's interesting, but I, I, you know, I'm not sure it really fits with the character. It's interesting to get this gl- windowed glimpse into her life, but I, yeah. I don't know. It just something felt off. If she was able to have friends like this and just enjoy a game of cards, coming to her house, they're hanging out. For them, that's a good time. I mean, yeah. What's wrong with that? It's normal.
1: Yeah, and she doesn't. And normal's not her. It's not her bag, right? So yeah, does yeah, yeah. yeah, and I agree. It does feel a little bit uh out of place. So I I I had trouble unpacking.
0: Yeah, and you know what I think? I think the focus here was on Joe losing his stupid car. Again, this with the goddamn repo man coming back into the picture. I don't <laughs> like this whole storyline at all. This D storyline or B storyline, whatever you call
1: it. Well yeah, it's not even the B storyline, right? It's yeah. like it's like the D or C storyline. Yeah. It's,
0: it's terrible. They should have come up with another way to get him to that house and that was it. It was just, you know...
1: Well, they could have just forgotten about the car. I mean, he's got a flat yeah. tire. And st- it's just <laughs>
0: hidden away. You didn't need to bring these guys into it. I think that was truly the focus of the scene. It wasn't about giving the audience a glimpse into her hanging out with her friends. I don't think so.
1: No, it, it wasn't. It was, at least it doesn't seem so. It, it seems like yeah, a mechanism to get him more dependent on her. Because now he needs them to, to even drive him around anywhere, right? He can't even go to the store by himself. Yeah. right um so anyway this uh this fancy old car that uh the gas guzzler and she this is the point where she starts to try to remake him into somebody more opulent more tolerable somebody that she would see as high society yeah like an high angel. society yeah and an equal if you will somebody that uh deserves to you know share uh you know oxygen with her so
0: yeah share it's, her glory
1: yeah. yeah that's right uh so you know they get some suits made and uh i i actually like the line here you know he's he's got the uh you know they're they're making a suit for him the guy comes over with the hair with the with the camel hair coats and he's trying to upsell her upsell him sorry
0: yeah it's a good scene
1: yeah and he's like well camel's hair will do and he's just like well why don't you go for the most expensive one and like well uh, while she's, she's paying, paying yeah and and how um you know how emasculating for for him at that point like yeah, this yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's emasculating, and that was the point of the of the scene. But hey, I would have I would have gone for the most expensive one.
1: I definitely would have gone for the most expensive one. I would have bought a couple more suits for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I will I will whore myself out to that rich lady any and every day.
0: Yeah, um, but I would have probably bought like a fucking monkey just in case, because it's just like <laughs> if things go wrong, it's starting to feel like at this point, it's like, well, oh, I better have a backup plan to distract her.
1: Uh, yeah. Look, a monkey. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, he did not think ahead. He would have he would've this walked
0: throws shit at you. Don't worry. <laughs> More entertaining than the last. Yeah. <laughs> uh
1: and uh, okay, so we get uh, you know she talks about getting him a tux for New Year's Eve. So, you know, this uh this sequence here I thought was uh, was interesting because well you know what maybe the setup from the bridge scene i just thought of this now because we get to the new year's party right he comes down he's all um well yeah know.
0: expecting to see friends yeah
1: yeah exactly right so he's he, he's been moved into the main house proper because of the rain damage in his room over the garage and uh you know he comes in the whole the, you know the, the the whole place is set. There's an orchestra playing. Uh, there's food all over the place. We know that she has friends. So so even, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, obviously people are, are going to be showing up, right? It, it seems natural at this point. So maybe that was the point of the bridge yeah, scene. I agree. Yeah. Because if that hadn't been there, we, we know nobody's coming.
0: Yeah. I retract, uh, retract that statement. Yeah.
1: Before. <laughs> I'm glad we're here to be able to dig into this stuff so we can straighten this shit out. Because what, what, what would we do without the podcast, man? I don't know nothing yeah what well, we'd always do nothing exactly yeah exactly so i just uh, so i'll just i'll rewind a little bit here um so when when joe moves into the bedroom and max says that uh, it was the room of her of the husband or the husband since so she's been married three times before but this is where he uh, kind of confides in him a little bit Uh, because there's no locks or doorknobs on any of the doors because, you know, she's prone to melancholy, as he says, and there have been some suicide attempts. So, you know, can't have sleeping pills in the house, no razor blades. They shut off the gas in her room like, like nothing. They gotta, uh, they, you know, like he's basically, Max is basically, you know, wrapping her in bubble wrap, making sure that, you know, she's fragile. We can't, we have to make sure she doesn't break. And, uh, you know, they start talking about the fan letters she gets, and we discover that it's, it's you know, it's Max basically who's been writing all of these fan letters that she still gets decades later. So, Shatner. Yeah, Shatner.
0: Oh, Bill, are you writing all these letters to
1: yourself? Oh, oh Bill. <laughs> Guarantee you she's getting signed portraits of that smarmy smiling Bill Shatner, my shit don't stink smile picture that we've all seen so many times uh when
0: kirk was climbing a mountain he was did he climb a mountain
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway back to new year's eve
0: uh I don't <laughs> why don't know you've ever seen that but it,
1: it's a classic you can educate me i'll show you yeah you can educate me uh anyway so let's get back to uh to new year's eve again the uh the place is set for a grand party she's had the floor waxed pouring champagne and you know they're they're hitting it off a little bit they start they start to dance a bit of a tango uh and then he's like
0: hmm it's
1: getting late like sh- you know shouldn't we be waiting for the others like where is everybody and you know i think he's you know it's past 10 o'clock when's everybody supposed to get here and she's like like who you know this was kind of matter of fact she's like well there's nobody else coming like this is this is just for us. This is for you and me. And and now this is the point where, you know, we discover and she says that she's, you know, she's falling in love uh with him and he's he's kind of freaking out um here, you know, so they, you know, they dance a little bit, but uh, the argument breaks out. He's he's kind of freaking at this point, which uh which I think is understandable. What what do you think? How's the crazy uh level for you here, Harry?
0: You know, it's crazy yet Understandable. I mean, this is a woman of, as we said, like um, she was big. She still thinks she's big, but she's also lonely and fragile. So she's depressed. She's probably a bit psychotic. Uh, you know, we talked about the ego. Yeah. If I were in those shoes, I would be worried, you know, but you know, you have to still feel for, for her. You have to understand oh, yeah. where she's coming from. So I, I didn't really think too much of it. Definitely a warning sign for the character of Joe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, I agree. I mean, she—you do have to feel sorry. You have to feel pity for her at this point because she is lonely. You know, she's I mean, this—you know—as we talked about the monkey, as silly as that is, but you know, her only, really, her only friend, her only family. She's she's vulnerable at this point. But when you have a an ego this large, when it gets damaged, you know, disaster is bound is bound to uh, is bound to fall. Right? So there's just no other. There's just no other. There's no other out here. She's just going to go crazy. But so he he takes off, uh, runs out into the rain, and uh, uh, you know hitches a ride back into town uh, to his old friend uh, Artie's house there into the uh, into the apartment. And this is you know kind of a glimpse of his old life, which we, we kind of get a feel for as he you know he walks in. Uh, you know Artie knows him, people know him, and then it's like you know they realize he's wearing this expensive coat. He's wearing a tuxedo, and you know. It clearly he doesn't belong in this world any, any, any longer. And I, I like this, I like this moment here because he's, he's seems so out of place in the other world because it's so bizarre. And then, you know, the next thing you know, as soon as he, as soon as he gets out, he doesn't belong in this one anymore. It's, it's almost as bizarre in you know, in the uh, other, as, as bizarre in the other direction, um, you know, as Norma's world. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so I thought it was—I thought it was an interesting uh, exchange here. I mean, it looks like he's—he's he's trying to get out. You know, he—he he just wants to stay at Artie's place, take the couch. And here we run into uh, Betty again. And you know, now the fireworks are 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 going. There's definitely some chemistry here. The zippy dialogue uh, continues
0: again. Now for me, we're getting back into that classic, almost cringe-worthy old retro Hollywood dialogue staged force just to get the romance out it's so unnatural but that's just the way movies were written back then right well like, i, overly I mean, dramatic like i can't see two people talking this way
1: well no definitely two people don't talk this way and that's you know again it the movie is over overwritten in in some in some spots where uh you're right like people don't talk this way but at the same time it does i think it provides a fairly effective juxtaposition because there's no real it's difficult to show how different these two worlds are and you know be able to do it in more ways than just you know he's wearing a tuxedo and he's at you know somebody's apartment i mean there's there's more to it it feels differently i think that it, i think if feels differently because of the dialogue and i think that's more effective on a like an emotional level if you're not picking up that the dialogue is overwritten as you and i are you're still going to get the sense it's a very different feel to it than you know his life at the mansion and i think that from that perspective this actually works uh you know because it takes us out of it a bit Mm. because he's taking himself out of that other out of that out of that life yeah well i agree yeah um anyway so they uh they chit chat a little bit they make uh making the googly eyes at each other and uh you know he's he's like he's making the decision i'm i'm out of that old life i'm 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 leaving so he calls the mansion talks to max like get me my shit i'm out uh and this is where he uh you know max reveals that she has uh you know uh she got the razor from his room and slit her wrists. So he uh, heads back, heads back to the mansion. Obviously she's, she's still alive, but, but injured. And, and this is kind of where he gets pulled in. I, I, now, are you telling me, obviously she's, she's been hurt already. Uh, she's in a tough situation. And, uh, you know, did she make? A legitimate attempt on her own life here, or is this was this just a you know a tool, a, a pity tool to get him back in and to uh, to to bury him further in her? you know, in her prison. What do you think?
0: I think based, you know, they don't make it clear, but just based on who she is and what is most important to this character, which is her reclaiming her fame. I think she probably did not make a legitimate attempt at suicide and just try to lure him back into her, her trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just my opinion because it's consistent with the character. But yeah. I do want to ask you something. I can't recall if they, in a movie, ever explained what happened to her other husbands. Who were they... Were they also writers or Hollywood bigwigs or, and what happened to them? Uh, it did not explain what happened to two of them. I know it, expl- it happened to one of them. Yeah. But aside from the, I think she only had another two.
1: Uh, yeah. Cause th- I think he, yeah, Max said that she had three okay. husbands. Yeah. So
0: the other two is who I'm referring to. Uh,
1: I, I believe not. I don't think that it ever, um, it was ever revealed what happened to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm assuming Hollywood at the time is the same as Hollywood now, where multiple marriages are, you know, hard for the course. So, yeah.
0: But I'm just opening the door of a possibility: is if she legitimately tried to commit suicide, like the, the movie doesn't go to this place. I think, you know, obviously we know uh, we, we we don't want to skip too far ahead, but we all know that Joe dies. Did she? Did she kill the other two guys? I don't. Well,
1: think so. I, I don't know that she. I don't think that she killed them on that. I don't get that. No, no.
0: I don't think that fits at all. So yeah. that, that's why I think I don't think that she, I think it was, if she drove the other two away, it was just because of who she, her ego and, and her unwillingness to age gracefully.
1: Well, no, I mean, I totally agree. Like she can't, I mean, and this is an interesting thing too, is like, she's not living as anybody's woman you know like this is this is 1950 you know a, a woman's place was was fairly defined uh, you know in a, especially in a marriage movie star or not um and she's not she's not being anybody's woman like she's she's the boss no she's a pioneer
0: for for women's women's rights for sure but which is great to see on the screen back then but I think it based on what I had read like because I knew of her before this uh, Gloria Swanson that now we're getting into reality here I think she was also like she was a big star back then and she was pretty I think she had dalliances and so I think it would depends I think maybe I don't know how it really was for you know Women, if you get to a certain stature in Hollywood, even then, and maybe the other rules of women still don't uh, apply to you. I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think you're you're right. I mean, nobody would have been expecting Gloria Swanson to be like cooking dinner for everybody. You know, certainly not. So you're right. I mean, some of those more traditional, like you know, middle class domestic roles, nobody's going to have expected to impose upon her. Uh, but even in the hierarchy of of Hollywood, I mean, you know, a woman's not going to make as much money as as her uh, as her male peers. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. But she's, uh, I mean, she's got she's she's. I mean, my impression would be, especially from the time, is like you could you could look at it a couple different ways. I mean, if if you wanted to go back in time and think of the sensibility of the time, uh, uh, you know, you'd say a man there is like, well, I, you know, I can't tame this. That I, I'm out of here like you know she's too she's got too much personality I don't want an equal I want a wife and uh you know that might have been the sensibility at the time so maybe that's what they're saying is she couldn't keep a husband yeah whereas if you did something like this today it'd be like she doesn't need a husband because she's got you know she's her own she's her own person and uh you know she she'd take an equal but she doesn't need to be anybody's uh, you know subordinate so you know, there's a couple of things you could read into uh, there for sure, I'd say. But anyway, I mean, back to the, uh, back to the, back to the film. He's, I mean, Joe certainly, he can't leave now. I don't get the impression that he wants to stay, but he's like, he, he does have some level of, uh, you know, he cares for us somewhat. So he, he stays now and, uh, the new, you know, New Year's over. And you know we kind of we kind of dissolve into the the final act uh, here. So as we get into the third act, let's just pause for a sec and look back on the you know second act. And what are your thoughts
0: uh, to this point? I'm digging the movie still quite a bit, enjoying myself. I'm I'm really enjoying the scenes between Joe and Norma and seeing how she's trapping him and just her nuances and her. The way she is, like she has all these, like this personality that she has, as we said, over dramatic, melodramatic, all of this is quite fascinating to me to, yeah. to see unfold on the screen. So I'm really enjoying her character. So, so far, I'm really enjoying, I'm enjoying it so far, minus the scenes of him and whoever the other girl is. I yeah. I
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I think I, I have to agree with you there. I mean, her I mean, her character is is so great. It's so engaging. And her, you know, uh, her performance here is, I mean, this has got to be a difficult character uh, to portray in a sympathetic way. I mean, she's, she's kind of nuts and she does some crazy shit, but she still is able to, you know, imbue it with, you know, the sympathy and vulnerability that, 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 you know, that make you feel for that, uh, for that character. It's, it's tough. Uh, you know, I, I think she's, she's carrying the movie on her, uh, on her back. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you know, Will, William Holden is, is doing a pretty good job as Joe, I think as well. He's kind of detached and and floating here. And I think he's a, an interesting counterpoint to Norma because she's so over the top and he's so under the radar. Uh, I you know I th- I think that really works uh with you know with their chemistry, their back and forth. So uh all right. So let's dive into uh the third and final act here. a uh, couple months have have passed. That's California might have been 20 minutes. Summertime the pool is is filled as soon as I saw the pool in a functioning state again, I, I'm like, "Okay, it's coming. This guy's uh, this guy's going to be eating it pretty pretty soon here." And uh, you know, we 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 get uh, a couple scenes there where where Betty's trying to reach Joe at the at the house. And the script we get the impression the script is now done. It's taken many months, and she's going to send it to uh, to. Our fame director, uh, Mr. DeMille, and, uh, uh, you know, cause he's the only option. You know, he was her director way back in the day. She's, she's speaking about him. Like he's, he's the guy to send it to. Um, also because the astrological symbols, I, I'm, I'm not sure what the significance of, of those references were, but
0: yeah, but it was it, interesting as she went to the studio, like every, so many people knew of her still. Yeah. And we're still it's still kind of interesting how you know, I understand if the old security guard would recognize her and the young one younger one didn't, that makes sense. But then when she entered the lot, everybody was surrounding her. Like she was, you know Yeah, that was par for the course. So still some, you know, some weird it's a little odd, some things feel a little inconsistent here. Because if she was still that much of a draw, that that quickly and that instantly and that much admiration for for the actress. From all these other people, you would think that she'd still be in movies. So, well, what does this say? I don't, I don't know here.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe you know, and I think
0: maybe. Oh, just sorry to interrupt. It's just, but maybe what they're trying to do is just sh- the filmmakers are just trying to show that she got a taste of you know the fans wanting her back, for that popularity, so her ego swells, and it's really about just watching her ego swell and swell, like she's back. Everybody yeah, loves me. Those kind of things.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that was it, definitely that was necessary for for the final scenes there, right? We, to build her, her her ego. I mean, part of it is. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if Sean Connery showed up in a movie set, every actor would be looking for his autograph. Even the guy, the guy hasn't made a movie in, you know, what 15, 16, 17 years, right? It's been, it's been almost 20 years for a guy like that. And his last movie was a bag of shit, but still like the reverence would, would still be there, right? Everybody'd be all over the guy. Yeah, he's just one example, but. I mean, I found it realistic. I think it was. I I don't know. I mean, I'm always looking for something deeper when you get a scene of that importance. You know, could have been that. You know, part of that they needed to they needed to pump her tires a little bit. Yeah, in order to to make the final sequence work.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, Yeah, Uh, just a little bit of a mixed message for me, but it was still a fun scene to watch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fun scene to watch. So. Uh, some interesting bit of trivia here. So there's actually two interesting bits of trivia here. So the set they walk onto, uh, was actually a real set of the real movie that, uh, Cecil DeMille was filming at that time. Which was what? Uh, you know? oh. yeah. Uh, the, 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 I do know it was, I thought you were about
0: to say the Goonies, but
1: <laughs> I'm saying here are a few decades off The Goonies, um, <laughs> Uh yeah, so it was uh was the actual set of the film uh Samson and Delilah uh, that he was making at the time. Okay. Yeah. Uh now, here's here's a piece of trivia that you're going to like. So when they get to the uh to the lot there and they uh you know, they meet the old guard there and he says uh, to go meet uh Demille on stage 18. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, that stage is one of the largest on the Paramount lot, uh, known for years as the DeMille stage, but is now called, are you ready for this? The Star Trek stage. Shatner. <laughs> as uh, all of the movies and some of the TV shows were shot on that stage, so, Um uh, from, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation onward, the main sets were actually right across the street in stages eight and nine, which were right below the second floor office occupied by Betty in the uh, upper floor there. Okay. And those offices later became the home of the Star Trek art department. Okay. So uh, a little bit of, uh, little connection there for, uh, for the Shatner fans out there. I thought that was pretty neat, actually. I, I love those sort of like real life tie-ins because obviously they're on the lot, right? They're shooting the movie on the lot. That's the actual place. Those are the actual stages. So a little That's bit of, uh, be look better cool. there. Yeah, very cool. Um, anyway, so there, uh, uh, we, we, we skipped over a couple pieces here where, where Joe and uh, Norma are driving around, uh, they uh, head into a drugstore to get some cigarettes, and Joe runs into Artie and Betty in the drugstore, and she tells him that uh, one of his scripts has actually been kicking around, and there's some interest in it, uh, but he's not really interested in anything uh, anymore. He's, he's basically retired from writing. He's he's got his new life in the mansion with his fancy suits and the. Gold plated cigarette lighter and, and on and on. So he kind of blows them both off. You know, and then we get this, then we get the scene where they head to the Paramount lot. And so she's, you know, she's kind of live, she's living in a dream. She's, she's not, she's not picking up what everybody's poking, putting down. DeMille's trying to be polite to her. And it turns out that the phone calls from the studio, uh, were, were just inquiries to rent the, uh, the fancy car, but nobody has the, nobody has the heart to tell her uh, about that. So it's kind of sad. Uh, it's kind of a sad situation there because now, she, you know, she's, she's going, uh, she's kind of going off on, on her own thing. She, uh, she starts having all these treatments on her skin, make her look younger. She's on a diet, trimmed down. Like she's obsessed with, with getting into shape for, for the film. And, uh, and Joe has obviously been convinced, uh, to work on this, to collaborate on the script, uh, with Betty in, in the evenings here. So, you know, the, the he's bored, he wants something more, even though he kind of blew her off. He's, you know, he wants to get back into into writing again. And she's just off in her world as well as she's, um, you know, she's trying to prepare for a movie that'll never happen. And there's actually one little scene just to go back again to when she's, when she goes to the studio there, and I don't, I don't know if you made anything of it, but she, uh, you know, she's basically bothering DeMille with her with her shit, he feels sorry for her. He's like, well, oh, sit here. Sit in my chair. I'm going to get to work. Just hang out as long as you want and walk. This is just before the shot that you mentioned where the light hits her face and everybody recognizes her. And there's a boom mic that's kind of hanging in her face there and just kind of freaks her out. And She swats it away uh, like a bug. And, and I thought that was kind of neat because... Yeah,
0: that, that was cool. I noticed it right off the bat too. Again, that's, you know, her fear. That's kind of almost like something of a phobia to her because... Yeah. You know, the pictures of today or in the fifties were in her time. Not in her time, like she's a silent star transitioning into pictures with sound. So yeah. she was never the star in any pictures with sound, so that's why that just represents everything that's just her it's her enemy.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, uh uh yeah, exactly. I thought and that's such a neat little detail, right? Uh I thought it was
0: uh Yeah, it's a well uh, played scene
1: yeah yeah exactly. so anyway, so she's uh, anyway, so we'll we'll jump ahead back ahead again where she's she's getting Frankensteined by all these uh, beauty experts. Reminds me of that scene uh, in Brazil uh, you know we did a um, some time ago where uh, the guy's mom's having her like face stretched yeah. out yeah um, so that, that was uh you know uh, kind of neat there um, anyway, so I thought the exchange is so the as we see Joe and Betty, they're collaborating on the scripts. I thought the dialogue was toned down a little bit here. It wasn't quite as off as it, as it was before, as we talked about. What did you think now as they're working together on the scripts?
0: Uh, slightly better than before. I think some of the conversation they're starting to have now is a bit more natural. But, you know, overall, I, I didn't dig any of the scenes between Joe and Betty in any, any part of this movie. I really didn't think they had any real chemistry, personally.
1: Oh, is that, is that interesting? I, I, oh, that's interesting. I thought, uh, I thought their chemistry, uh, worked very well. I thought it was, I thought it was great because she was, you can't see they're into each other and, and, but, you know, she's, you, you know, know but she's like,
0: not. Then, you know, again, you even get that scene where they're walking at night in the when the par- uh, studio's empty and it's just getting some construction work done for the next day's shoots and things like that. And and then you know you have that classic again classic Hollywood old school Hollywood moment where we're about to kiss he asks her but then he like almost like you can see he almost crushes her arm yeah he it very tightly and yeah. it's like almost at a borderline abuse right there and remember you. <laughs> 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 <Yes>. <laughs> essentially that's pretty much what he did yeah Except he much- just said you know the next time we even i even think about kissing you mock me over the head i didn't like these scenes at all ah uh, this we could joke about it but they they're cringeworthy it just hey, they're just too dated you know just for someone who grew up in that time i'm sure it was very normal to see but i can't stand that's that's one of the fears i have when i go back and watch older movies is and i'm sure millennials of today have feel the same way about movies that we grew up with right? yeah they just, so. they just can't relate but i think that that stretches even more from even our generation to movies from the 40s and 50s
1: uh yeah i i agree actually i do agree with you on that one for sure yeah, yeah. uh you know she uh, we you know we find out that uh hold on where are we here
0: well, they're collaborating, collaborating on the script. Yeah. So they're, like that, they're and Norma collab- finds out, right?
1: Yeah. She, she knows that he's been kind of sneaking out, confronts him and he, he blows it off, but he keeps sneaking out. And she eventually, uh, she actually finds, uh, the script that they've been working on. And, you know, what, what kind of, what kind of sets her off is the, uh, the title of the script itself, which says, I mean, it's, titled is Untitled Love Story, you know, by Joe Gillis and uh, Betty uh, Schaefer, I believe her name is. So, you know, this is kind of what what sets it off. And, you know, Norma, Norma calls her, Norma calls Betty, you know, in, in a way to kind of confront, uh, to confront her. And, um, you know, Joe walks in, grabs the phone and he tells her to, to come over to the mansion, gives her the address. You know, Norma's trying to explain herself, you know, don't hate me. Even though he's the one who's having the affair even though he's not having an affair, but he's the one who's been lying to to her and again that you know you see his character and that's why I kind of I would go back to that uh the first scene with the repo guys when they show up at his apartment and it seemed innocent at the time where he's just you know weaving a tale telling a lie in order to um in order to save his car. his character is to try to write himself out of situations right he hasn't been truthful with Norma, and and norma's never told him a lie i mean maybe she never said all the whole truth but he's never uh she's never misled him or anything like that she's been batshit crazy but he's the one who's been lying to her and that's the way that that's kind of the what what i see at this point here you know so uh betty shows up at the at the mansion and he's he's walking he's walking her through his life at this point and he's basically her He's basically Norma's whore at this point, right? He he gives her what she needs as far as companionship and and whatever else. And he gets the fancy suits, the custom-made shoes, the cufflinks, the platinum keychains, as he says, the solid gold cigarette case, all of this stuff. And he doesn't. And he says, you know, he doesn't want to go. She tries to get him out of there. And he's like, well, I don't want to go back to a one-room apartment I can't pay for. You know, story that may sell and probably will not. So he's... He's kind of being, he's giving her the cold shoulders, being a dick to get rid of her. Um, And this is probably the most obvious thing that he's done at this point.
0: Yeah. And again, like, it's kind of funny, like, you know, we talk about ego and vanity for Norma, but then this is the male ego classic, and this is timeless, classic male ego and vanity of not wanting to maybe rely on Betty you know rely on somebody else to take care of you whether even if he wants to be with her or not you know he wants to do it his own way without relying on somebody else because i think next scene is he wants he leaves norma anyways right well he's putting on a show for betty yeah because even though he's probably wants to have a relationship with her his ego and vanity can't allow himself to rely on her he's putting on a, a show trying to get rid of her Yeah. And then he's going to leave on his own. Like he, he, it's, he's admitting failure. A man's admitting failure if he's got to rely on a woman he cares about.
1: Well, is it, I mean, I agree. I mean, obviously he's, he's putting on a show for, for Betty. I mean, that's, that's certainly the case. But is it because he doesn't want to rely on her or is it because he's trying to, uh, steer her away from him because he knows that she should go off and be with Artie and not be anywhere near him because he's, you know, he, He's a, he's a dick like I, that's I don't, the- I don't,
0: I don't know it. the movie's not clear enough and that I think that's you could look at it either way maybe that's a fault of the movie itself I do have some problems I will say overall with the character of Joe he's just not even though I know where you're coming from as a writer it's kind of clever to see how he kind of talks himself out of situations because of his uh, expertise with with verbiage yeah but I need something more than that to be engaged in a character. I really don't find that. I mean, that's a little interesting little, you know, piece of thread there, but uh, beyond that, there's not much to this character. Uh, I don't find him really that engaging personally. I don't mind his relationship with Norma, but that's more, that's more dependent on Norma and how fascinating she is to see and watch william holden's character i just i'm not finding a lot of meat here to keep me engaged and that's why whenever he's away from norma i'm hating everything i'm seeing
1: interesting and then see that's interesting because i because if you go back i mean he's kind of framing the story so he's he's the one telling her story well sometimes the best stories are not about yourself jeff (laughs) (laughs) bullshit (laughs) not true um uh, anyway, so he gets, uh, as, you know, as we get back, uh, as we were talking, he starts packing up his shit. He wants out of there. Um, he's, he's just go, he's, he's just gone. He wants to be gone. Uh, but, and I mean, he's being really cold, but I mean, he's put himself in this, in this situation. I mean, he, uh, you know, he's agreed to everything at this point, even though she, I mean, she's trapped him and, and used him. Uh, he's trying to escape but you know he's take. you know he makes a big show of taking off the watch and the cufflinks and all the fancy stuff packs up his old shit and, and gets ready to go you know she's she's trying to get him to stay she's trying to justify like they still want me you know the the movie's getting made and then this is where he drops drops the bomb is like he tells her like if it was just being nice they just wanted to rent your car and that wasn't it nobody and he said none of us had the heart uh to tell you so so that's that's you know, that's it. She she had showed him the pistol before, um, but he's, you know, he's out of he had a good line here. He said, you know, he says to her, Grow up, you're a woman of fifty, and there's nothing tragic about being fifty, not unless you try to be twenty-five. And I thought there was a couple interesting layers there. I mean, does that apply does that apply to only women in this era? Does it apply to men as well? Uh, is it a commentary on on trying to be something you're not? Which I mean, she's a She's an actor, you know, and he's writing fantasy, he's lying. He's acting this whole time too, I thought. Um, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting line there, depending on what
0: context. Yeah, and I think going back, I think this is really the, the focus of what we said. A movie, Hollywood movie for Hollywood. It's a topic where I think they were talking about not just women, but it could apply to men too. Like the studios kind of pushing aside older people, not having room for them for the stars of yesteryear. Yeah. So it's a celebration of and recognition of those stars from the past. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it was critically acclaimed. Yeah. To be honest with you, right?
1: Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree there. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, as we come to the end, Joe runs out into the yard. She's chasing him. She's got the gun and, uh, Boom, she puts, she, she busts some caps, two in the back, one in the stomach and down into the pool he goes. And, uh, and that's it. Joe, Joe is toast. He kind of gets, I don't know if you see, he got what was coming to him, but you know, we, we always knew this, this was coming. Uh, that was. That was it for Joey. He, he he got it. Well, you could say the epilogue to the film here, the, you know, the, the police are there, the media is there and she's, you know, she's had a psychotic break or whatever you, you know, you want to, you want to call it.
0: Yeah, I found it, this fascinating, like even that the the police, you know, I guess Hollywood stars even back then still got preferential treatment. None of them are willing to put cups on her or yeah. lay a hand on her, but they're going to willing to do whatever it takes to gently arrest her. yeah yeah you know i guess that that has not changed
1: that is not matter what era you're in right (laughs) in fact i bet it was worse then than it is now i mean probably yeah i mean absolutely yeah they uh uh they they yeah, they treat her with uh, some kind of reverence, if you will, right? Yeah, and to
0: get her, you know, let's just play along, get her down the stairs, you know, get the photo, get the cameras out, you know, start yeah. taking pictures because you know they're getting wind on what's going on, how what what's what it's going to take, what she really wants, and and that's how the movie ends. And I think that last shot where she says, you know, you know, Mister Demille, I'm ready for my close up. I think that's the the line I remember without even watching this movie. I think that's stapled in Hollywood lore yeah yeah and i think you know that line gets tossed around quite often in pop culture
1: it does yeah it's a very very famous line for sure i love the shot as she's coming down the stairs and everybody else is kind of static and she's the only one
0: moving. yeah i noticed that too it's very well shot
1: yeah very well shot
0: yeah um and i think it would have been more I, I would have liked it if nobody moved at all except her yeah i i agree yeah, yeah. Uh, it been good Almost there. They almost did it, but I think that might have been a nice way to kind of a good throwback to the the times of you know more silent pictures or 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 yeah. like you know very early Hollywood pictures where almost nothing was moving.
1: Oh yeah, I and I, I
0: think that would have been quite interesting if they yeah, did it that way.
1: Yeah. So there you go. That's uh that's the film, man. That's that's Sunset Boulevard. So. One question I I guess I want to ask you right now as we kind of get to the the end of the film. Well, actually first let's talk about uh that the last shot where she's, you know, sort of coming right into the frame there with her, you know, her Jeffrey Rush eyes, you know.
0: Yeah, no uh fantastic uh, so, shot. Yeah. Probably my favorite shot in the movie hands down. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love Everything about this kind of epilogue set piece, uh, fantastic. Again, anything to do with Norma Desmond herself has just been really great to see. Interesting character. Again, melodramatic, energetic, strange. You know, it's it's just a fun character to see displayed on the screen. I yeah. love that shot. It's a little scary. It's kind of like, you know, she's so... Out there right now, and she's zooming in on on the audience, like the the picture, the the camera's framing it, and it's getting closer and closer and closer to her. It just shows what it's scary, and but it shows you what ego and vanity. You know, if you become that self absorbed, this is what you become.
1: Yeah, I, I love how they hold it for so long too. You know, they don't they don't cut away from it. No, she just keeps coming. Cause you imagine on the big screen, seeing you know seeing her come at you like that. I mean. Uh, match it uh, in
0: 3d maybe this yeah. one, maybe this one should get uh, you know retrofitted for a 3d conversion
1: That'd be uh, hey I'd, I'd watch it I don't know that it'd be good but I'd watch it yeah so that's uh, that's the film man that's Sunset Boulevard so you know kind of a, a question that I've you know I want to ask is I don't know maybe it's not maybe it's not fair to, to ask it this way but I mean, there's a lot going on here so what what is going on here what I mean what's underneath it all? For you. What's it about?
0: Well, I think I've already given my my thoughts on that away. You know, I think again, a Hollywood movie having a commentary about Hollywood itself, you know, you can talk about it just talking about women in general or the studios and how they treat the stars of that have come and gone. They've yeah. just forgotten about them all. It's a studio system. It's still, you know, they focus on younger stars. Nobody cares about your elders anymore or the people who made you like DeMille. You look at DeMille and he's even though he treats Norma very nice personally, but in the end, he really could give a rat's ass about her. Yeah. So, I mean, this, she, there, she just has been. So, we don't care about her anymore. She doesn't make us any money because nobody's interested in anymore. So, it's commentary on the Hollywood system. You know, maybe they're trying to say we should respect of the people and celebrate their accomplishments of what has happened before there's also that thread piece about the different type of technology how technology has changed things you're having a star from silent era transit cannot transition into you know these new movies that are made with the boom mics with audio so it you know how technology is changing something and that's a relevant you know topic even today it doesn't have to be about just audio like people who are working they can get displaced quite easily because technology just changes on a dime they yeah. just eat them up and spit them out. So it's commentary about life in general. So yeah, I, I think that's really what it is. I don't really think it's to me. It, I didn't really interpret anything more than that.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, I think you're you know you're right in a lot of uh, a lot of ways there. And what I one of the things that I really do enjoy about the film is, I mean, it's interesting how you know how much of the commentary is still relevant. You know, it's it's 2016. It's been a long time. But a lot of what it's talking about are, are, you know, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's, you know, aging or, or you know, gender roles. I mean, everything everything is – is it's still so uh, modern. I mean, you could put any of these topics into a movie today and it would still work yeah, uh, I mean, just as well, you know. I think yeah, exactly. it's I-
0: exactly. Like, because like actors, whether it's women and men and still obviously we could – are are you still it's, I think it's fair and safe to say that women, even more than men, as they age, they find it harder to maintain employment, whether you're talking about Hollywood or anywhere else in any other type of job. Yeah. And then men, same thing. Men versus young older men versus younger men, same situation,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. To a lesser extent, but absolutely true. Extent, yeah. yeah. Um I also want to talk a little bit about the kind of the look and feel of this movie. Uh, you know, as I've said before, I'm not, uh, I'm not a huge fan of movies of this era. And as such, I, you know, I don't have a huge frame of reference, but the, I mean, obviously it's, it's black and white, but I felt that from how it was edited and shot, it felt very modern to me in that it was very kinetic. You know, the, the other movies of this era that I've, that I've seen, it's almost like they just kind of put the camera down and, and then, and then let the actors talk, right? They just speak their lines and it's,
0: like more you know, TV for, like a soap opera.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of like a soap opera. And outside of some of the, you know, the most talented filmmakers uh, I think that was a lot of what you saw. And this isn't that at all. I mean, there's, you know, shots are are framed very deliberately. I think there's one scene where, uh, you know, Joe is facing away from Norma. She's lying in bed, but we see her reflection in the mirror. So we can see them talking to each other, but they aren't looking at each other. You know, you know for example, again, the, the, the swimming pool shot, as I mentioned before, uh, it, it just, it just felt to me very kinetic, which,
0: I I would I would agree. I don't think even though as I I've been complaining about some scenes between Joe and Betty that have been it seemed forced and stilted dialogue set back in that uh, the fifties era that is unnatural. And I agree with you. I think other movies from the forties and fifties they for today's modern audience they would suffer people watching getting through it because of the way it's filmed. As you said, it's just very simplistic. You just set the camera down, very amateurish for comparison to today what we can do today but i don't i didn't get that feeling out of this movie the way it was filmed maybe i was too engrossed in seeing what i was seeing with norma desmond and who she was but maybe that just got lost into me but i know it would stand out for me if it was the opposite if what you were saying is a very stilted way of filming here i felt it i wouldn't go as far as saying kinetic and the camera was moving but maybe just the way it was filmed the director knew how to frame and place the camera appropriately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I think is, uh, I think it shows a very, you know, fairly talented, you know, director here. I mean, uh, you know, Billy Wilder was, uh, you know, certainly also has a long uh, um, resume of of films. I mean, some that, you, you know, you've heard of, maybe some you haven't, but, you know, he's got some famous some famous things so he's certainly he's not uh he's not an amateur that's for sure yeah yeah i agree yeah. he did a good job yeah i thought he did a good job too yeah uh as far as performances go i mean I, I mean gloria swanson i think we've i think we've uh talked about her i mean fantastic performance from her she's certainly the the highlight of the of the film here right? there's there's no question i mean as I said, there's only one other person I could see in this role. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Uh so overall, uh what do you, I mean, so we could talk about our other our other lead here, uh William Holden, what uh what did you think of him?
0: Hit and miss. He wasn't bad, he wasn't great. Yeah. I didn't find him to be that engaging he just he did his job you know they had he had chem sort of some chemistry with Gloria Swanson so that worked so I'll give him credit there because you, you know maybe you can't just throw anybody there you have to have two actors that can play off each other well I, yeah. I didn't like him and Betty uh, the actress who played Betty and the scenes just by himself weren't that engaging either so he was hit and miss for me Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, I, I agree with you on the chemistry with, with, uh, with Glorious Watson. I mean, they, uh, I thought they played off each other well. You're right. He didn't, the fireworks weren't there with, uh, you know, in any of his other scenes, really. Again, I thought that, I thought it worked because of the uh, how much of an opposite he was to, to Norma. I thought that that made sense to me. It felt you know, narratively it, it made sense to me. But um how about uh how about Eric von Straheim as Max the
0: Butler? What did you think of him? Yeah, and we didn't even get to the fact that he was the third husband, but that's okay. He was okay. He's kind of creepy yet not creepy at the same way. So I don't I don't really know what to make of him.
1: I, I he was creepy and and yeah you're right we didn't really get into the details there as he was her uh he was a her,
0: her you know husband form. who but was protecting him and, and loved and him so much that even after a divorce he became her butler so what the yeah. fuck I is yeah. kind of a little odd little odd character yeah. there in my opinion the, the judge sentenced him to be her butler <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: got <laughs> but <laughs> a that's car great. accident that's great I yeah. love it. <laughs> I, I liked his final, the final scene there where he's uh, directing her, uh, you know. When
0: yes, Patrick. that's true. I yeah. did like that. That was, that was great. That was great. Look, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, there's, I, you know, I think we kind of unpacked pretty good. I, I don't have any other discussion points. Do you have anything else you want to, you want to dig into here?
0: I do. Just the only question I had for you, and maybe you partially answered is when you initially watched this film, you said, you, obviously you're not a. You haven't seen too many movies and not a big fan of uh, of many of the films released uh, in this time period. What was your initial reaction to seeing a movie like this? And have you also gone back and seen other, because of this, maybe, uh, if you've enjoyed this film, has that enticed you to go watch other movies from this era? Uh, okay, well, to answer the first question
1: there, what did I think of it uh, initially? I I was totally blown away by how much I uh really once enjoyed it on an entertainment level uh by how i was i was amazed at how much was actually there, how much was going on i didn't expect uh it to be as layered as it uh was so uh that was my initial reaction i i was I was totally shocked that it was as good as it was Did that directly lead me to watch more films of this era i mean not necessarily specifically but I s when I do watch movies from from this time frame now, uh, I enjoy them a lot more. Like I can get into that era of filmmaking a lot easier. You know, a couple examples, you know, I mean, maybe it's a little bit later on in the time frame here, uh, but I watched a little bit more Alfred Hitchcock. And and I think I've you know I've enjoyed that more. There's a couple other movies uh, that are older that uh, you know that my girlfriend enjoys that you know I've gone back and watched and found like you know sort of a, a deeper level of appreciation for uh, of of the style of filmmaking uh, uh, at this point. There's a certain there's a certain earnestness, or at least it comes across that way to me in in films of this time frame. So. I don't know. I mean, I I don't think I'm going to be you know going back and watching a lot of classics, but uh, but but yeah, I have more appreciation for sure. What, what about you? What's what's your level of interest in this in this uh, in this era of Hollywood?
0: I mean, like like yourself. I mean, you're not exposed to a lot of this. I think more movies from the '60s is where I've spent more of my time. Going back, like the '40s and the '50s, not so much. But that's something I kind of want to rectify moving forward. Whether it's through this podcast or just on my own. So I'm glad we really did this. Uh, I am interested, but I do have to be very picky because you know i can get through a movie and i'll watch it if it's the story is good but if the story and the dialogue is not good and if it's forced dialogue like i've been hinting at throughout some scenes and i'm sure there are many many i'd say the bulk of the movies you know that's where rare antiquities come from finding those gems in there that don't have that mistake but if the bulk of them are just like for stilted dialogue which is unnatural i can't and that story is not engaging i'm done i can't i won't be able to get through it yeah yeah fair enough uh
1: all right well let's uh you know let's kind of move into our final thoughts so what are your final thoughts on uh on sunset boulevard harry is this a recommend and is this a rare antiquity
0: I was, like yourself, on your first watch of this movie when you, as you just explained earlier, I was surprised at how much I did enjoy myself despite the movie still having some problems. As I talked about the dialogue, anything to do away from Norma Desmond herself, I really had a problem with. But any of the scenes between Joe and Norma and then Norma herself, I was completely fascinated. It's great to see not only a woman of age, but just a woman even in that era in the 50s having being the star of the show and that was very refreshing to see quite surprising to see too and i thought she did a great job i thought the movie did a great job at exploring some of those themes that are still relevant today which we talked about you know people aging women aging respecting this you know for the hollywood system respecting the stars of, that have come and gone do older people have a place in today's society or right. they has been i mean these are these are topics that are relevant today yeah. Not just in Hollywood, just in life. yeah uh, So I did enjoy that. I was quite surprised at that, and and the play of the ego and the id, and you had the ominous feeling as we talked about. I, I liked some of that setup, and you know she was kind of a little bit of a crazy character. Is she psychotic, borderline psychotic? Is she just depressed? Is she just full of herself with the ego and vanity? And then there's the topics of vanity as we talked about what it can do to you. So I enjoyed all of those concepts, and I thought. You know, you could take any one of them and explore it in depth here. So there are some layers. So I did appreciate that. But again, some of the dialogues of the acting, some of those BC, uh, the C and D storylines with the car, those repo men, terrible. Didn't like Betty at all. Terrible. Joe and Betty, terrible. But I know that it was necessary to get him out of the house to, you know, cause some jealousy and some, some tension. So, but overall, yes, definitely a recommend. And I do, I would say it's a rare antiquity because going back to this era it's hard to find movies that i think you know a lot of people can get into and i i think it this movie's place in pop culture too definitely warrants it to get the stamp of recognition as a rare antiquity but it's not so amazing that it's just a it's a blowout recommendation it's a good recommendation it's a good movie to watch it's not the best movie i've ever seen or anywhere close to it but definitely a surprise watch and i do recommend it and it's a, it is a rare antiquity
1: do you do you think do you think it holds up for modern
0: audiences? Depending on the audience, I would say yes. Yeah, okay. uh, I do because you know we touched on it. The way it's filmed doesn't yeah. make you think that it's so old, and the characters so is so interesting. But the problem is, is you may, you know, millennials today probably won't even give it a chance. Two minutes in, they'll just forget about it. You know, they're they're on their phones anyways, or they'll just go, you know, want to watch reality TV or some other bullshit crap out there. But yeah, I'd say for people who really appreciate a movie and willing to give it a chance, they can get through it just the first 10, 15 minutes and maybe very, you know, it's a little tricky. Yeah. After that, then I think uh, you'll, you'll be engaged uh, to the end.
1: I, I agree I think from an ex like you're right when you say it, it kind of depends on the audience as far as films from this time period go it's pretty accessible but it's still a film from this time period yeah. you know like if you want to watch Citizen Kane for example, which is for whatever reason you know often hailed as the greatest motion picture of all time it's not an accessible movie it's not easy to watch it's not easy to get into for all of its uh you know uh technical wins it, it it's tough this is not Hard to—it's not a slog to watch this, but uh, as far as uh, my my thoughts, I mean, obviously, I've given it away. I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of this movie. I, I was totally blown away the first time I've watched it. I think I've watched it uh, three or four times uh, in my life now, and. Uh it's one of those movies that for me kind of reveals more bits and pieces about itself every time I watch it. You know that little detail with the boom mic when she's sitting in the in the studio there is not something I'd ever picked up on before. Um so yeah, for me it it's a recommend. I mean, if you're if you're a fan of films of this era, you're you're going to dig this show. If you don't have a lot of exposure to films of this era, but you want to watch you want to give it a try, check out something from the black and white days of Hollywood, I think this is an excellent place to start. Um, so yeah, recommendation for me. Loved as you said. I mean, uh, Gloria Swanson is uh, is a force of nature here. She's spectacular. That character of Norma Desmond is so engrossing, uh, so unsettling, yet so human. I mean, it's great. Huh? The, the character is great, and her portrayal of it is is fantastic. Um, I, I, I'm a little more forgiving of uh, of the character of of Joe and of William Holden and i thought his performance uh works uh because he, he you know he doesn't stand up to her because he can't so they you know he has to be he has to kind of be who he is in order for it to work uh, in my opinion so i thought he was good and uh yeah this uh this i think it's the this gets the rare antiquity stamp uh for me uh, no doubt about it for sure oh that's great That's good to hear. Yeah. so uh i think that wraps up uh, sunset boulevard harry uh, what is in store
0: for us next time well, sir, sometimes the gods smile upon you, my friend. Next week for our milestone 20th episode, can't believe we're there, but we're there. Even though, yeah, not much of a milestone, but a milestone nevertheless, <laughs> we will be talking and analyzing the horror cult classic, William Shatner's Kingdom of the Spiders. <laughs> <laughs>
1: awesome kingdom of the spiders yes (laughs) oh man what year is that made that's the 70s that's in the 70s 70s okay so post post (laughs) okay yeah that should be uh well hey there is no other man to usher in our milestone episode uh, than than William Shatner himself. There's
0: no, and I had that. Pl- I you know the funny thing is, is I I had that planned even before you told me about Sunset Boulevard, and here we are talking about Shatner throughout this episode, right? Uh, so that's kind of kind of funny. It's kind of, it just naturally happened that way, destined. Two,
1: we could be talking about painting the deck, and William Shatner would probably come up in conversation. So. <laughs> Yeah, probably. It's probably not a huge stretch, but uh no, I'm looking forward to that one. That'll be have that'll be that a No, I've never seen it. No. Okay, so yeah, so that'll be that'll be interesting. I've,
0: have you seen it? Have you seen it before? <laughs> long, long, long time ago. So, I'm okay, looking forward so, to seeing it again. Yeah, I'm that'll only be I remember yeah. a few scenes from it. So, I know what it's generally about, but uh yeah, I'm looking forward to uh he's sticking my teeth into this one again
1: well let's uh hey man uh, you're yeah. either gonna
0: end up with arachnophobia or Shatnerphobia. i'm not sure
1: well, what's what's the end result we'll see i hope it's not a cross of the two because that could be a frightening new beast shirachna <laughs> Characno- <Characnophobia?
0: laughs> <laughs> hey, regardless i'm looking forward to it no, <laughs> Now,
1: pop your popcorn that'll be a good one all right man that uh, was fun <laughs> yeah it was a good one uh we'll
0: we'll see you on the next one buddy all right you too